Lord, may we not just sing these words, may we believe them with deep conviction at the very root base of our soul, our being, our heart, our thinking. And what did Jesus say about me? You can do nothing. You are our salvation. Not just saving us from our sin. You save us from our foolish decisions. You save us from our selfishness. You save us from all things we need to be delivered from. Help us to discover the truth about ourselves and all things around us. Help us to quit deceiving ourselves about our significance and our value. We are not nothing. We do have some contribution to make to spouses, to families, to children, to, to friends at work, to neighbors on the street. We, you've put something in us. We, we have some, some sense of, of, of benefit to others and to self. But God, we get, we get intoxicated with ourselves. And somehow we begin to fall into this myth that we've done all this apart from you. And without self-disgust, would you help us to understand that we are what we are, as the Apostle Paul says, by your grace. It's your grace working in us, God. If it weren't for your grace, I would be nowhere near what I am. So give us an accurate view of self. Give us an accurate view of you. And let our confidence be in balance, and I don't mean 50-50. Might our confidence be, yeah, okay, I, I, I have some, some skills and something to offer, but even that is because you've deposited that within me. God, it's you. It's, it's you. It's all you. Help us to, to, to embrace that with joy, not with regret. To embrace that with, yes, it, it's all you. And because of you, I am whatever I am. God, that would be your grace. You are our salvation. Not just spiritually, but academically, emotionally, relationally. All the roles that I fill and each of us fill. God, we need you in our life. God, we need you in our life. To save us from ourselves on every level, in every dimension, you are our salvation. Now would you cement that truth deep in our hearts, even now, as we open your word. Make this time profitable to us, please. In your name we ask. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Open your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Micah. You'll, you'll quickly find that because you're reading there all the time, I'm sure. <laughs> Micah is one of the minor prophets. I always like to point this out. Just not just for information's sake, but, but uh, so you don't think with contempt about 
the minor prophets. The word major prophet, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they're called major prophets because they wrote a major body of work. Isaiah's book, 66 chapters. Micah is a minor prophet because it's a smaller amount. It's all major, minor, medium. Certainly does not mean less important, less significant. You know how we give too much attention to attractive, wealthy people and not nearly enough attention to impoverished, not so attractive people is completely imbalanced. I tend to think we do that with, with the scriptures. Major prophets, minor prophets, Moses, Moses, Abraham, and then Jacobin. <laughs> right now you're thinking, who's, who's Jacobin? <laughs> That's the point. That's the point. So we're looking at the Especially the last two chapters, I'll skim over the first uh, five with you quickly. But I want to take you back to Easter, just to give you a point of reference what I'm trying to do here with you these last many weeks, and this being the conclusion of that small piece of a bigger picture. On Resurrection Day, of course there's the crowd at the tomb, the empty tomb that morning, Mary sees the empty tomb, runs and gets the apostles. The apostles run back. Yep, sure enough, she's right, it's empty. But Jesus is there after the apostles go back to wherever they were. Mary's still walking around crying, and, and, and she's talking to these angels that are there, thinking that, that they're just a couple of guys. Maybe they work here. And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, shows up and speaks to Mary, and she's so overwhelmed that she, she doesn't even recognize him. She's startled out of her emotional stupor, and, and there's great worship, joy. And then, especially the Gospel of Luke, skips to this midday theme, where Jesus encounters these two, a couple of friends, maybe, probably in my mind, a husband and a wife, walking home from Jerusalem, because the Passover is now over. They're going home, and, and it's a day's walk, and, and Jesus just begins to share the road and walk along with them, and, and he says, so, what's, what's you know, going on? If Jesus said stuff like that, and they said, you don't know? Where have you been? And they begin to update him on all the stuff about him. That they crucified our Savior. And, and we don't know where he is. And all this turmoil. And, and then there's this verse. Luke chapter 24, I think it's verse 27. And beginning, beginning with the law and the prophets which is the great Old Testament way of saying with Moses and the rest of the Old Testament. At the beginning there, Jesus expounded to them all the verses pertaining to himself. Just think about that line. That they're walking home, a four to five hour walk, and in that amount of time, Jesus is from memory speaking to these two that are overwhelmed in their grief 
the scriptures that pertain about prophecies the Messiah will come, he will live a sinless life, he will offer up that life in payment for our sins, and then to assure us that this is not just a, an on-the-earth kind of a deal, he will rise from the dead, giving us the hope and the promise that, that we will rise from the dead with him, and we will be with him for eternity. And all the Old Testament scriptures pertaining to those big topics, death, burial, and resurrection, atonement, he pulled all of them and explained that verse and that one and that one and that one and all of them. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened to us the scriptures? And my point in showing you these scriptures from Easter until now is to help you to catch what he did for those two. That our hope, our consolation, our encouragement, the entrance of your word brings light, our illumination, it all comes from the scriptures. Right. We think we figured this out. We think we have we have some insight. There's a tremendous amount of, of colloquial phrases we use with one another that if you did just a minimal amount of research, you would discover, oh, that, that old saying came from the Bible. Mm -hmm. Not all old sayings do. There's no verse, by the way, that says, cleanliness is next to godliness. <laughs> it's a good thing to live by, but it's not in the Bible. Much of what we say is rooted our hope, our encouragement, the thing that enlightens us. It's all coming from the Word of God. So I want us to be encouraged, directed, rebuked, restored, forgiven from the Scriptures. And I, and I thought, because I want to get to Mother's Day, I'm going to preach on Mother's Day, and it's been a long time since I took a Sunday, and but I want to do that next Sunday. True Sunday from now is in the ecclesiastical church calendar. True Sunday from now would be Ascension. That for, no one knows exactly, 20, 25, 30 days. Jesus is walking around the earth after the resurrection, and then he ascends, that's next Sunday, he's back to the Father. And then two Sundays from today is Pentecost, and uh, I'm trying to get back on a church calendar. So next week we'll do a, a, a cultural American day, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about mothers. Two Sundays, ascension. Third Sunday from today, counting today, Pentecost, and then we're back on track with some, some progression into the New Testament and moving forward. So we've been from Easter until now, trying to get some encouragement from the scriptures. And I wanted to end that short little four-week section on, on, on encouragement from the scriptures in the Old Testament passage of Micah. So open your Bible, scroll in your phone, or Mark's going to put particularly chapter 6 and 7 on the screen just a bit. But I want to just, just fly over real quick these first few Chapters. You see there in the printed notes. Chapters 1, 2, and 3. I'll use the word retribution, but I don't like the word retribution, but, but it'll help you to remember. I don't like the word ret ret retribution because it somehow makes all God's man and we're getting punished. The concept here is no, we want this on ourselves. Right. You reap what you sow. Right. 
So before you get all fired up to yell, well, and, and this is this is a a, a very very uh, recent. When I say recent, I mean the last. So if you're thinking about world global history, oh, the last few hundred years is nothing, nothing. nothing. But this is a, a, a very recent thing, and it's a very American, or at least a Western world thing, that, oh, we can't worship a God who's mean and cruel, and no other culture thinks that way. Even right now, in the 21st century. It's, it's only the Western world, and uniquely, not unique, but particularly, American Western world. Some parts of Europe, Eastern Europe, absolutely not. Other parts of the globe now, absolutely not. This 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 mentality that well, I, I can I, I don't understand God. God doesn't seem to be nice all the time. God's not fair as we measure fairness. So so I'm I'm, I'm done with this Job God and his his son Jesus. No, the rest of the world has a keen understanding of no. We we pretty much make our own bed. You you and, and Proverbs is full of this kind of of, of clear statement. You, you you sow righteousness, you're going to reap righteousness. You sow wickedness, you're going to reap wickedness. You reap what you sow. You, you, you can't be yelling and screaming and, and, and violent and angry all the time and then wonder why your kids have such, uh, you know, uh, uh, relational temper issues. Right. Yeah, I wonder where that came from. So on and on and on, there's, there's, there's this... this Growing, because we need an excuse. We're, I say we, I, the, 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 the massive population is saying, yeah, we, we uh, I, I don't want to just come out and say, well, I don't, I don't like Jesus, so I'm rejecting Jesus. I need to find a reason. So we, we got a reason now. Uh, he doesn't make sense to us. He's cruel. And I can, and there's a couple of passages in the Old Testament, and I heard somebody on, on the podcast I listened to say something in the New Testament that doesn't make a lot of sense to me, so I'm, I'm done with Jesus. Wow. Okay. 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 People do pretty much what they want to do, and they find a reason to justify it. But an honest, not even have to be a believing view, just an honest academic view of the scriptures, you would quickly come to the conclusion, even if you don't believe that God is God, that this God is, oh my goodness, patient to a fault. He just keeps waiting and warning and waiting and warning and waiting and warning. And then finally, there will be some, okay, you're going to have to reap what you've sown. And that's chapters 1, 2, and 3. And he talks about the ten northern tribes that have pretty much already been taken by the Assyrians. And then God judged the Assyrians for doing that to his people. <laughs> they have reaped what they sowed. <laughs> But God is going to chastise the people that did it. So you think God is cool? And now it's not just the ten northern tribes called Israel by the Assyrians. Now the Babylonians are coming and, and, and the prophets. And our guy Micah was one of them. Micah and Isaiah were preaching at the same time. 
Isaiah preached a lot and was written. His sermons were written a lot. Micah, not quite as much, but they're saying in essence the same thing at the same time to the same people. And so the first three chapters are okay, it's going to come. Just like we've seen happen to your cousins and our distant relatives in those ten tribes, it's not going to happen here where the temple is, down here in the southern part of Israel, Judah. Jerusalem and the surrounding area. It's going to come to us as well. But, chapter 4 and 5, even before we get strength, the prophecy of promises, chapter 4 and 5, God is going to save and forgive and restore us. So here's this cruel, mean God saying, you're going to reap what you sow, but I'm going to intervene. I will stop it. You will not be obliterated. You will not be wiped off the face of the earth. You will not be eliminated because of your great rebellion. You won't. Because I'm going to intervene, and I'm going to make it stop, and I'm not going to restore you to a greater degree of significance and that becomes prophetic about the coming of the Messiah, Jesus in the New Testament, and, and, and how the Israel of God becomes the spiritual kingdom of God. And all of that's prophesied in chapters 4 and 5. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, you're going to reap what you've sown. Chapter 4 and 5, and I'm going to restore you. This being cruel God that we don't like. He's going to restore his people. Chapter 4 and 5. And now, chapter 6 and 7, he, he gets to the point that Mike is saying, Oh my goodness, this, this great God is going to do that? And we deserve worse? Yeah. Oh, we need to repent. We, we, we need to, to, to repent. Chapter 6 is not a minute notes. The first three verses is God is saying, how about, how about we just go to court? And I'll make my case and you make your case. As if the people say, yeah, God's been cruel to us and God's been mean and we don't like this, we don't like this, and I don't understand why he says this and says this. And that's just, that's totally wrong. Then bring your case to the court. And I'll bring my case to the court and we'll let the jury, and in his case it's very poetic language, the jury would be the creation. The mountains and the trees and the rivers and the streams and, 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 and let the rest of the creation decide here. And, and he makes that kind of statement, verses 1, 2, and 3, verses 4 and 5. But don't forget, we've been through this before. Ancient Israel coming out of Egyptian slavery, and I took care of them, and I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and the bread fell from the sky, and the quail just flew and sat down, and I had this rock, and you would speak to the rock, and the water would come out of the rock, and I conquered all of your enemies, and I went before you and I delivered you. And then you cursed me. You forgot me. In fact, you said, we were better off if we were slaves back in Egypt. And here we are, repeating the cycle again. You're in a mess. And I'm going to let you feel the consequence of some of your own behavior. But I'll stop it. You won't be obliterated. I will restore you. I've got plans for you. <laughs> so that's how chapter 6 opens up. With a very brief, remember, we've been through this multiple times in a cyclical way. 
we get to our verses, chapter 6 and verse 6. So, how do I approach God? How, how do I, what do I say? What do I do? What? Have you ever felt that way? I, I, I'm interested in God. I, I think I need God. I, I think I'm, I, I've learned a little something about God, but I'm afraid of God, and there's some things I don't understand, and there's some things I don't like, as if I know everything. How shall I come before the Lord? How am I come before the Lord? Shall I come before the Bernardos? Cavs and year old? How about a thousand rams for seven? Ten thousand rivers of oil? How about, shall I give my firstborn? The question is, what's enough? Do, do I have to wear a shot at a time? Do I have to fast for three days before I go? Or a month? Or how much is enough? How, what could I do? What can I possibly do or say? How do I dress myself? How do I cleanse myself? How do I put, do I speak Hebrew? Do, what, what do I say? What, I don't know how to approach God. And there they are. Now you might think that the answer, and the answer does come into verse 8, you might think the answer has, well, he doesn't, he doesn't question, no, God hears exactly the question. The answer comes in verse 8. He told you, well, man, what is good? And what the Lord requires of you? And here it is. Do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Do justly, love mercy, walk, live, interact humbly. It's an oversimplification, but that's the essence. He doesn't say in verse 8, repeat this prayer. He doesn't even say, and the Bible commands us to get involved in, in a spiritual community, but verse 8 doesn't say, join the church. He doesn't say, in the Old Testament, get circumcised if you're a male and, and, and become Hebrew. If you're a Gentile, you need to be a proselyte. Join us. He doesn't say any of that. He doesn't give a religious Get your, get your, you know, little tattoo. Be it literal or, or emotional. Get your mark of identification. You know, he says, live a godly life. You know what a godly life looks like? Well, it's, it's this. They do what's right. Spike Lee said it right. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Do justly. What if someone else doesn't treat me justly? That's a great question. Our response is to be merciful. We do the right thing. If someone else does it, it's okay. We give kindness. We give mercy. We don't repay take or tax. We don't. Because the love of Christ has changed us. The love of God has changed us. We do the right thing. Whatever the right thing is in that particular situation. And if no one else is doing it, and the rest of the world is going crazy, well, uh, for me, it should be, as my wife again to tell you, well, a few times, well, that was quite a few times, he didn't actually make the mark. But we love mercy. Not getting even. We love mercy. And then we don't even brag about the last of mercy. 
We walk humbly. We do the right thing. And when the rest of the world is going left, no, we're staying, we're staying with what is true, with what is right, with what is obedient, with what is godly. We show mercy and kindness. We turn the other cheek. We go the second mile. And we don't brag about it. We're very humble. That's the essence of the godly Old Testament, New Testament, Christian, Hebrew life. Call it whatever you want to call it. This is God's standard. This is God's standard. So uh, the question isn't for us, uh, have, have you been to church? I love going to church, but going to church doesn't make me holy. Going to church doesn't, you know, well, God's paying attention. Look, look, he's in church. Okay, write that down, angel, write that down. He's <laughs> in church. I, I, I'm not saying church doesn't matter, but you know, we're in church and, and we take church seriously. I mean, I'm preaching an hour, an hour. Some folks, they're in and out 45 minutes tops. That's the announcements, that's the songs, that's the offering, that's everything. I'm preaching to preach an hour. Some people in church, but we go to church. Go to church pastor Dave, you go to church. No, it, it, it doesn't have that kind of, oh yeah. People the age. No, if, if you're not by verse 8 standard, what's the point? The answer to verses 6 and 7 is verse 8. I gotta gear up, I, I gotta clean up, I, I, I gotta make a presentation, I, I, I gotta, you know, I, I gotta bring something here, I'm in trouble with God, and, and I don't know what to do. It's verse 8. But the problem is you can't live verse 8 unless Jesus changes you from the inside out. Yes. Yes. I, I'll never live verse 8 yeah. until something happens deep within me. Right. It's a spiritual transformation. This is why people don't understand the Bible because they're looking for an academic answer. They're looking for a scientific explanation. There's some science in the Bible, but it's not a book of science. There's, there's, there's some relationships, all kinds of relationships in the Bible, but this isn't in the how to have a, have, a, have a great relationship. This is, this is the relationship between you and your creator who becomes your redeemer. Yeah. Yeah. And until that's in place, nothing is going to change. Right. The Bible never makes sense to you. Never. There's history here, there's science here, but it's a book. It's a book about the relationship, not just horizontal, me and you, but vertical, me and God. Because when me and God are straight, and you and God are straight, me and you will figure it out. Mm -hmm. Well, there's verse 8. And it's from verse 8 that we launch into the rest of chapter 6 and then all of chapter 7. We've got to see verse 9. The voice of the Lord cries in the city. It is sound wisdom to hear your name. Hear the rod. That's an interesting mix of of, of statements. Hear the rod. You're going to get spanked. But it's, you did this to yourself. But I want you to hear what I'm saying through the rod. Catch the mixture of, of metaphors. Hear the rod. Beautiful, beautiful statement in verse 9. And know that God has appointed this 
after much, 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 much patience and endurance. After long warning, and you just would not listen. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to get your attention because you're not listening to me this way. Maybe you listen to me this way. For your own safety. So I teach the girls how to drive. All the girls, whatever we have to call that, girls who told the girls to drive. And they were tired of the drive, but they would just, especially after Farm told these terrible stories, then then Angel would say, Oh, wait, I've got to teach you to drive. Oh my God, you're going to die. So I'm, I'm, I'm in the pasture seat, I'm, 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 you know, Happen at night. Don't do that. Don't do that. Look here. Forget the radio. Forget that stinking radio. It's a huge distraction. And check your mirrors. And I'm all this stuff. Okay, 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 okay. And I'm saying you, you got to pay attention. This is this is life and death here. This is this is the, you know you make a mistake and you know okay okay I get my nails done because I, I I scratch my nails. No, this is getting your nails done. This is life and death. Someone's gonna die. Someone's gonna die if you get this wrong. It's pretty much like that. It's pretty much like that. And so, I don't know, she'd been driving, I don't know, six weeks, six months, and, and I get this call from a police officer at Kennedy Hospital. That's never good when that happens. And, and, and my reaction was to yell and scream, and my thought was, didn't I tell you? Didn't I tell you? That's driving. God is dealing with us with eternity. Yeah. Catch this here. Before you get, yeah, I don't want God's a good man. He's trying to, no, I'm not trying to be crude, to scare the hell out of us. There's hell to pay. And we're still around here. Well, I don't, you know, God seems a little harsh on this. I'm not sure I, I can. Roll with a God like this. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> He's saying to us, look, I appointed this rod for you in verse 9. Because better you get a little rod now than you have hell for eternity. All we've done now is set the stage for what's about to unfold the rest of chapter 6 into chapter 7. In verse 12 of chapter 6, he simply reviews what I've already established for you. Rich men are full of violence, and having a stupid eyes, tongue is deceitful in the mouth. It's just chaos. It's the opposite of verse 8. No one is doing justly. No one is loving mercy. No one is walking humbly. We don't have any of verse 8. We have only verse 12 as a salvation statement. And then finally, chapter 7. Let's go over to chapter 7. I skipped a lot of great stuff to spend the rest of my time in chapter 7. I love the personal pronoun, me, in verse 7. Woe is me. I have become. 
So Micah is saying, it's not just you guys. I've been caught up in this too. The preacher is saying, look, I, I may not be as deep into it as you guys think. I see some of those same attitudes in me too. And you need to hear me tell you the truth. And it is the truth when I say to you, look, I'm, I'm, I'm with you in these problems. You, you don't think I haven't lost my temper with my family and shown it. And you don't think I haven't lost my temper with church members. I just don't show it because I'm a pretty good hypocrite. You don't think that I don't, I don't have that in, in my memory, in my experience. Then, then you don't know me that well. There's none of us that are sinless. Let's start with me. I love in chapter 7 and he says, we're all in trouble. Yeah. Woe is me. I have become. And he paints this great poetic picture. It's, it's like the end of summer and, and all the fruit is gone. And, and, and the only way we can get fruit now is, you know, it's, it's the grocery store and it's imported from South America somewhere. But there's no grocery store in South America imports for Micah in his day. When the fruit's gone, the fruit's gone. There's no cluster to eat. There's, there's no figs. Verse 2, the godly have perished from the earth. Do you feel that? There's no light. There's no one living humbly. There's no one doing justly. There's, there's no one that's nice. Are you sensing an increased hostility in our world these days? It's a sad painted picture. Verse 1, verse 2. Skip down to verse 4. The best of them is like a briar. That's the best. That sticks you. That hurts you. That's the best. Oh my goodness. The Bible is not given to meaningless hyperbole. It's poetic language, but it's, it's precise, it's accurate. The best in Micah's day is painful, like a briar. The most upright is like a thorn, a hedge of thorns. Oh, the day of punishment has come. Confusion is at hand. So much so you can't trust your neighbor. You can't trust your friend. And even watch what you say with the person you're sleeping with. Son treats his father with contempt, daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Well, that's pretty much every generation. A man's enemies are the people of his own house. His own house. Here's a picture. See, see what he's telling us. This is dire situation. And then the beauty of verse 7. It's the beauty of verse 7. And as for me, I will look to the Lord. I could preach, I'm not exaggerating, about three sermons just here. But catch this issue of faith. That he knows about himself, verse 1, chapter 7, verse 1. And he clearly knows about his culture in the whole previous book and these verses we've just skimmed over here in chapter 7. 
And I would expect his response in verse 7, chapter 7, verse 7, I would expect his response to say, forget about it, there's no hope, open your throat, it's over. He doesn't say that. He says, I'm, I'm going to turn to the Lord. Yeah. And he knows he knows that himself. Verse 1. I think one of Satan's greatest lies is he gets you your head and tells you the truth about yourself. And we know the truth. Yeah, I am that stuff. I'm not chapter 6 and verse 8. I, 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 I don't love mercy. I love revenge. I don't walk humbly. I brag about it. Most things I do, right? And the things I don't do, right? I actually come out my eyes that I did. And for justice, you know, I, I, I get a chance to get over someone and make a buck, I'm probably going to do it. How am I going to pray? I got caught up in this life. And now it's time to pay. I don't want to pay. Too painful to pay. I need God, but I, how am I going to talk to God? I'm messed up. How am I going to talk to God? Well, we skimmed over chapters 4 and 5 with barely a reference to it. But in chapter 4 and 5, there was the promise of forgiveness and restoration. And Micah knew, because he had preached it, the promise. Chapter 4 and 5 of forgiveness and restoration. And he comes to himself in chapter 7 and says, I decide to believe that promise. Knowing that I'm not worthy, I've definitely not earned it. But God has promised that he would love and forgive yeah. and restore. Amen. Yeah. And I'm running to it. Now that's not religion. That's grace. Grace is, I bring nothing. I bring nothing. I mean, nothing. Uh, my father was a pastor. Don't carry any weight at all. I've only slept with one woman my whole life. It doesn't bring any weight at all. I'm going nowhere else. You're all I've got. I'm 
I'm parking at the front door. And I'm not moving till you come out and forgive me. I will wait for the God of my salvation. And I believe he will hear me. That's brother's gospel faith. Not on himself, the creator. Not because he read every verse of the Bible and finally came up to his expectation and God satisfied all of his questions. So, okay, now that, now that I'm convinced, okay, I'll bless you with my presence. No, this is a broken man saying, You're my only hope. And I'm throwing myself on your mercy. And I'm not changing my mind. I'm going to write this out. Till you intervene or I die. But I'm parched at your feet. And I'm not moving. That's the story of the Bible. Right here in the Old Testament. This is the story of the Bible. God is gracious. And he just keeps loving the people that he made. And they keep rebelling. And we keep rebelling. And I keep rebelling. And he keeps rebelling. We keep rebelling. And he says, I'm right here. And I promise to love you, and I will love you. Even when you're unfaithful to me. That, by the way, is the whole book of Hosea. Who has an unfaithful wife. And she's sleeping around. And everyone knows it. And he's the pastor. He's the prophet. <laughs> the prophet's wife is a whore. And midway through the book, God says to Hosea, I want you to go find your wife and bring her home and love her. My unfaithful life to sweep around has become a joke. Yeah, that one. Just the way I love my people, you love your life. And he does. And it's a beautiful, happily ever after story. Because that's the story of the Bible. That God made us. And we gave him the finger. I know you don't hear that in most churches, but but we we flipped them off. And he just keeps coming for us. He just keeps coming for us. And that's Micah's response. In verse 7, chapter 7. I'm going to God. I'm going to get on my face. I'm not going to claim any kind of rights or, 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 or advantages. I'm begging for mercy. I'm on my face before a holy God. And my only appeal is he did make a promise. He made a promise to forgive. That's my only open opportunity. That's my only chance. And I'm taking it. I'm running to the cross. I'm running to this Jesus. I'm, I'm, I'm running to the Lord, my God, the God of my salvation. He will hear me. Verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. I know I'm messed up. I know I'm crippled. I know we're listening along and saying we're the people of God. We don't look like the people of God. We ain't been acting like the people of God. But he's going to restore us. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, he will be a light to me. I love his brother's faith. The most crucial moment. Are you at your most crucial moment? Or is there some more breaking down that's got to occur? How bad they got to get for you run home?
This is beautiful stuff. This is, this is the, the Bible encapsulated in this one brief, beautiful story. First time, I, okay, I, I will bear the indignation. I'm not arguing. I, I'm telling saying, I don't deserve this. No, I deserve this and more. I'm amazed that this is all we had to pay. The way I know myself, the things I've said and done, not to even mention things I've thought. I'll, I'll bear my indignation, verse 9, because I have sinned. And that's my position. That's my that's that's my stand. That's that's where I am philosophically, theologically. My conviction that he's my only hope. I'm going to take my beating yes. yeah. and believe that he took the ultimate beating on the cross yet to come in Micah's day. And I'm going to stand here until look at the last line of verse nine. Until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me, he will bring me to life. And I will be vindicated. Amen. Amen. I'm, I'm going to stand right here until he pleads my cross. It's a legal term. Amen. Maybe you've never had to have a lawyer, or maybe you have. But I love the whole image of, of this painting for us in multiple places. This is one brief scene of, of, of God becoming our, or Jesus becoming our, our, our lawyer. The Bible refers to Christ as our advocate, which is another great word for lawyer. It's a mouthpiece, someone who speaks on our behalf. You, you've probably seen a movie where where uh, the, the defendant is, 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 is being just shredded by the prosecution. And they're making him look like scum. And he just can't sit. He just can't sit and listen. And finally, he, his emotion erupts and he stands up and says, That's not true! It's not true! And the Lord says, Sit down, sit down, sit down. You're making this worse. I'll speak for you. Sit down! And sometimes I sense the Holy Spirit, who is Jesus to us. We were alive in the first century living in the Middle East. We might have met Jesus, but I'm not. But we have Jesus in the Holy Spirit. And sometimes I want to defend myself. I'm not that bad. And I just, they're making it sound worse. No, no, they shouldn't say that. And the Holy Spirit says, sit down, sit, sit down. I'm speaking for you. I'm speaking for you. Okay, okay, okay. You get all upset. Hey, don't ever talk about me that way. Sit, sit down. Sit down. We have an advocate. We have an advocate. Jesus Christ is the righteous. And I really believe this happens day by day by day, hour, moment by moment by moment. You see it played out, especially in the book of Job. Those only few verses of chapter 1. That God is there, and Satan shows up, and Satan says... No, I said it backwards. Satan is there, and God says, God says, hey, Satan, what do you think about my boy Job? God brings Job's name up. What do you think about my boy Job? And I've often wondered, does God ever say to Satan, hey, what do you think about my boy Dave? Or calls your name? 
as a display of faithfulness, as a standard of righteousness. How do you think about my obedient name? Uh, I'm not very confident my name comes up in the context of obedience and faithfulness that a lot. God brings Job's and Satan says, oh, oh, let me tell you about your boy Job. Job only serves you because you protect him. You got him in a bone. And if you were to spread your fingers just a little, let me slap him around, he'd curse you just like everybody else. And God says, really, watch this. And God spreads his fingers. He's going to write this. Well, you see, that's, that's why I'm done with God. But let me go and never do that. Glad you shared your great insight and wisdom with us. But somehow I'm going to stick with the wisdom of God more than you are. Yeah. Yeah. And so sure enough, God permits. This really encourages me. Satan can only do what God gives him permission to do. Yes. I know that muddies the water for most people. Well, why would God let that, that stuff happen? When we get there, we can ask it. <laughs> After about 10 million years of just worship. Yeah. And Job does not curse God because Job understands Micah <laughs> chapter 6 and verse 8. Yeah. Job doesn't curse God. And chapter 1 is pretty devastating. Meteors fell from the sky and burned. He had ten children. They each had a house on the farm and, and burned all the houses and all of his kids died. And, and then another tornado came and a hurricane came and all the animals got killed. And in, in, in about 20 minutes time, in about 20, 30 minutes time, his kids were dead. All the animals were gone. He has no way to make any more money. And because it's not a cash society, if you trade goods, all of his goods are gone. He has no way to make money. And in all this, Job sinned not, nor cursed God. End of chapter 1. Next step, chapter 2. See my boy Job? Well, that's because you didn't let me touch his health. I just took his stuff. There's a whole lot of stuff. Ten children, spouses, grandchildren, who knows. The ability to make money, it's all gone. Job says, I'm sick with God. Second day, okay, touch his health too. Touch his health too. He's not going to curse him. God touched his, uh, God let Satan touch his health. Job did not curse God. In all this, Job said not. In the chapter 2. Because our relationship with God is not based on performance on our side, it's totally 100% trusting his performance to love, to provide. And even when we don't like what he's doing, we know it has a purpose and we write it out. And however many chapters of the book of Job at the very end, it says, and that in the end, his end was better than his beginning. Job Joseph tells the same thing. Look, fellas, I know you meant to hurt me. God meant all this to happen for my benefit. For my benefit, for my good. <coughs> So let's get back on track. Let me get back on track. Verse 9, I will bear the indignation. I will stay here until he pleads my cause. And he will plead my cause. I'm going to trust my lawyer. 
I'm going to trust my lawyer, my advocate. Every day, I believe this deeply, Satan goes before the throne of God every day. And he says, <laughs> you see your boy Teddy Bear in Blackwood, New Jersey, North America? God says, yeah, I know, Dave. You see how he got short with his wife? You see, when he, he, he didn't act on it, and, and no one knows it, but he had this, this, this thought of, 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 you know, I was offended, and, and maybe I'm plotting some revenge. You see that thought he had? And Satan makes his case before the throne, before the bar. But then Jesus, my lawyer, steps up. That's right. How about that? That's right. I never get a bill from him, by the way. <laughs> Jesus steps to the bar. And he says to the judge, his father, he says, Your Honor, everything that lying filthy devil said is true. David is guilty of that. And that and that and that. Well, yeah, by the way, Satan left down is guilty of this too. But Your Honor, I paid for that. Yeah. Yeah, but... 
verse 13? Yes, sir. Remember chapter 7, verse 1. I'm guilty. Chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me. I am fruitless. I don't, I don't have much proof of righteousness in me these days. I got caught up in my culture. Murmuring, complaining, and saying, well, where's God? How come he's so mean? I got caught up in that. And now it's time to pay. But I'm running to Jesus. Amen. Can you have enough faith that even in your worst moments, your lowest moments, my only hope is to get back with Jesus? This is why Paul said to Timothy, son, fight, fight, the good fight of faith. I've been in a lot of fights that weren't good fights. There's nothing noble about that struggle. There's all about arrogance and who's the big dog and who's going to win and who winds up with more prestige or more money or who got the girl. Those are silly, foolish fights. And unless you come in and start slapping my wife around, you're going to have to be put down. <laughs> the good fight is the good fight of faith. The good fight of faith. And that's what's happening here in chapter 7. That's the fight that Mike is engaged in. Okay, Mike, you're messed up. What are you going to do? Stand up and present yourself before a holy God and say, I, I know I don't deserve to be here, but your promise is that I could come, so I'm coming. And I will bear my shame until you take it away. Are we used to other ways? Oh, I'm not a very good Christian. You know, at least I think I'll move sort of kind of maybe I'll pray the prayer, I'll get to go to heaven when I die. That's not the Christian life. Sneaking in the back door. As if there is a back door, but there isn't. fact, not only we stand up straight knowing that we're forgiven. Not that I'm amazing, but I am forgiven. Look what, look what happens. Verse 14. Shepherd your people with your staff, the prophet of your inheritance, you dwell over the forest in the midst of garden gardens. God will shepherd his people. And David knew a little bit about shepherds and sheep. And so we all love Psalm 23, even if you only hear it at funerals. But the essence of it is these three phrases. Yeah, I, I, I've been chastised by my Redeemer, Lawyer, Jesus, God. Yes, I, I have felt His corrective hand in my life. But for the most part, we know Psalm 23. You lead me to green pastures, still waters. You restore my soul. My cup runneth over goodness and mercy all the days of my life. And I will dwell with his bread. This is the heart of God for his people. We get messed up. We get caught up in our culture. We start thinking like the rest of the world around us. And all of a sudden light moves on and we realize, how did I get so far away from God? Now what are you going to do? In that moment, what are you going to do? Well, Micah says, Stand up and run. Run back to the cross. Run back to the cross. And believe that you'll be forgiven. Because he promised to restore. That's fighting the good fight of faith. Or you could just shrink away and, well, you know, that my spouse, my kids, my job. Stop! Stop! Stand up on your stuff. 
and shepherding one another. Yeah. God doesn't take our past and rub our face in it. Yeah. But He does say, You want to stay here. You should stay here. Come with me. Come with me. And so, what do we say to other people that are messed up? Do you rub your face in it? Or do you say, Look, I know where you are is not a good place, but you don't have to stay here. That's right. Let's get out with Jesus. Come on, let's go. Let's go. It will be, he gives them a comparison in verse 15. It will be like the days when he came out of the land of Egypt. And the bread fell from the sky. And the quails came in and sat down. And the water came out of the rock. I'm going to take care of you. 16, the nations will see and be ashamed of their lives. I gotta tell you, I love verse 16 probably a little too much. <laughs> I probably love verse 16 because I like to, in a very humble Christian way, <laughs> say, I told you so. <laughs> Go ahead. Nations will seem to be ashamed of all their might, and they shall lay their hand over their mouth, and their ears shall be dead, and they will make the dust like their face will be on the floor, on the ground, and the dirt. They will make the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn and dread to the Lord our God. And they'll realize, oh my goodness, they were right, and we were wrong. That day is coming. That day is definitely coming. All because, verse 18, God ain't nobody like you. Who's a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression. He does not retain his anger forever. Hallelujah for that. He delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to your people, Jacob, and to Abraham. You have sworn, you have sworn that you will never leave us from your sins. That's right. Praise the Lord. Yeah, who wants to walk with a God like that? Almighty, let this happen. If I could tell you an explanation for every little thing you want to know, I would be God. Well, I'm not God, but I know enough about God to say, you're not going to get a better deal anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I know. Yeah. Who was a God like you? This is our hope. In our darkest moment, to get over yourself and say, yeah, this is this is the truth. This is my hope. So let me connect back to where we started this morning, and I reminded you of Easter. And everyone's depressed. Oh my goodness, we got duped. I hitched my wagon to a falling star. Now he's gone, and I wasted three years of my life. What are we going to do now? Beginning 
We belong into the prophets. Jesus from the Old Testament took all the scriptures that spoke about the Messiah himself. And he spoke to them. And they said, did not our hearts burn within us when the scriptures became real to us? That's what we should be doing for one another all the time. What Jesus did for those two on the way back to Emmaus. But we take the scriptures when we get discouraged, when we get overwhelmed by the circumstances of the world around us or by the consequences of our own sin. We take the scriptures because the scriptures give light and the scriptures give hope. The scriptures give reassurance. And the scriptures tell us, yeah, you messed up. But if you'll own that and run back to the cross, he'll meet you there with grace. And he will love you. And he will forgive you. And he will restore you. Amen. This is how he shepherds us. And this is how we shepherd slash disciple one another. I think we've all pretty much learned if you're a dog lover, or I don't understand cat people, if you're a cat person. <laughs> Dogs don't seem to learn much when you take their face and rub it in the urine or, or the solid waste they've left behind. It doesn't connect, it doesn't, it doesn't help. It makes them afraid of you and other consequences now come. There's a better way to teach house training to dogs and cats. That way is not effective. You would think we would learn that from dogs, but we tend to try to enforce the same kind of approach with people. We rub their face in. Tell them how terrible they've been. How you embarrassed this for the whole community. think we would learn to love them, our spouses and our children and our neighbors and our cousins and aunts and uncles. And we would love people the way Christ loves us that he doesn't take my face and rub my face in. He says, Dave, what are you doing? What are you doing? There needs to be a conversion moment. 
this born-again religion is coming into his house, his family. Some of you have had that. You got way off track. You got way off track. You know how to get home. I think you do. Quit trying to make something nice out of your rebellion and call it what it is. It was just rebellion. I didn't just get you know misdirected. No, I willfully did what I did, and I'm too ashamed to admit that. So just say it out loud. Just say it out loud. Yeah, I did that. But Micah says in chapter seven, verse seven, that I can go home Amen. because He has promised to welcome me and to love me. So why don't you come home? If you've never been to Jesus, come to Jesus. If, you, if you've got away from Jesus, come home to Jesus. Why don't, why don't you just come home? Just come home. I wanted to sing with you a song this morning by Donnie McClurkin. I don't know how many of you know Donnie McClurkin. But it's not a typical congregational song. It's pretty snappy. But the essence of that song that we're not going to sing is you say this, you say this, and I believe it. You say this, you say I will deliver you, and I believe it. Just, and that's the essence of the song. You say you give me peace, and I believe it. You say you give me salvation, I believe it. And that's the essence, I just love the song because it makes that point. But it's kind of snappy and it's hard to follow and there's a lot of echo. Repeat, repeat. So Google Donnie McClurkin and find that song and sing and smile and cry and laugh and say, that's me, Jesus. I believe it. I believe it. The song we are going to sing this morning says, Lord, I need you. I need you. You need Jesus? Run home. You'll find him. And tell him right now while you sing. Stand with me.